Turn, if you will, to Acts chapter 2. We started in Acts 2 some weeks ago, and we will be getting to those aspects of Acts 2 that inform us about being disciples of Jesus. But along the way, we're smelling the roses, some flowers, and so in Acts chapter 2, there's the, uh, actually the event of Pentecost, I'm sure most of all of you are familiar with. The Holy Spirit comes, the great gift of the Holy Spirit poured out upon the church of Jesus Christ, poured out upon every believer. And so we looked at that some, we've looked at what Peter starts out with the prophet Joel. <clears throat> Basically, people were saying, hey, this coming of the Holy Spirit on people and all of the things attending it, all of the uh, expressions, the, the prophesying in, in languages that from around the world, talking about the great works of God, no doubt in Christ. And people say, oh, they're just drunk. Paul says, no. This is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. He's speaking to Jews and saying this is what was spoken through that prophet that is in your Bible. A short prophet, a prophet that's easily assimilated. I'm sure many were familiar with it. We saw there's this principle of interpretation that the New Testament, because it fulfills the Old Testament, the New Testament interprets the Old Testament, We could have some ideas from the Old Testament of our own and think in certain directions and end up going in the wrong direction. So we should always start with the New Testament and interpret backwards, at least on those things in which the New Testament speaks and says it's derived from the Old Testament. Principle of this is that. Acts 2 is Joel. As Peter starts to unfold his prophecy, the prophecy of Joel, he quotes 231, chapter 2, 31 through 32, and in the last days it shall be, God declares. In the last days. It's our tendency to think of last days with reference to ourselves, to think, well, the last days are yet to come, and certainly there's some days yet to come. There's what we might call latter days, there's the last day that's going to come. But last days is the terminology of Joel, speaking from his standpoint in history at least 500 years before Christ, speaking of days that were to come, last days. And it's an important reference in the New Testament. In fact, I can think you can go to almost every book in the New Testament and see where this is the structure of the history of redemption. And they'll use terminology or synonymous terminology or what you might say sort of adjacent terminology to speak of these last days. These last days will be marked by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on all flesh. And those Old Testament expressions of having the Holy Spirit will also be found among New Testament believers, New Covenant believers. People will prophesy and such. And so this phrase, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, inaugurates the last days. But then there's a sort of abrupt turn in Joel's language where he turns from the last days and the Holy Spirit and things that are what we might call positive and sort of bubbly. Great to have the Holy Spirit working in your life. Great to have the fellowship of the Spirit. Great to be energized by the Spirit. But then he abruptly turns, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below and blood and fire and vapor of smoke and the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. There's this apocalyptic language of judgment that's found in a number of places in the Old Testament, concentrated in Joel. But Peter includes these in his quote. 
And Joel announces this <clears throat> great day of the Lord, the great and magnificent day. There are many, many days in which God has intervened in human history, many days in which he's brought judgment to empires. Again, so that's some of the, the things that are maybe hard to slog through in the book of Isaiah or hard to work through in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, just these pronouncements of judgment, <clears throat> judgment that came to pass at that time, in those times. But there's one final day, one great day. And there's sobering terminology about that day. So as we look to Joel and let Joel structure for us what we would call the history of redemption, if that's a big word for you, it's just simply saying that ever since the Garden of Eden, God has been pursuing redeeming the human race. There's a history of it, and you can trace that history through the Old Testament into the New. So it's the history of that purpose of God to redeem sinners. And as this history progresses, we find that Joel says there's going to come this era in the history of the world. And there will, it's called the last days, and there will come this day in the history of the world in which there will be a global, cosmic, final judgment, the day of the Lord. Now Jesus takes this terminology up when he talks about his second coming. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And in that place where Jesus is taking up that language, he's, Matthew 23 through 25, it's, a, it's really not a hard passage. I mean, it's hard if you, again, as I said last week, it, it's hard if it's hard. Uh, it can be puzzling. I kind of think that, are, are most of you familiar with op art? Where you can you look at a picture and it looks like a checkerboard or something, but after a while you can kind of just sort of semi kind of glance at it and a picture emerges. An elephant or, you know, something like that. And after you've seen the picture, it's like not hard to see it again, right? But it took a while for your eyes to get focused in and see it. And that's what Matthew 23 through 25 is kind of like. You have to sort of read it. It's long, so you have to pay attention and spend some time with it. But it's really not complex. And so as you go from sort of theme to theme, if you will, or section to section, you end up at the parousia where Jesus says, this is my actual coming. He's talked about the judgment will come on the generation standing before him. He's talked about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. His disciples have asked him questions. Well, when shall these things be? What's going to be the sign they're going to happen? And he answers them. He talks about the gospels going to all nations and the destruction of Jerusalem itself and warnings to what to do if you're there for it. And then he announces his parousia, his actual presence, his return, his coming. And so as we looked at that, Jesus uses the apocalyptic language. Again, language found throughout the prophets. Jesus sort of takes it and weaves it together and says, this is going to sort of be the, the fulfillment of my coming. We're not sure what it's going to look like when stars are falling from heaven and powers of heavens will be shaken. How much is apocalyptic? How much is actual? We're not sure. We do have other passages in the New Testament that describe you know, some things, that it's, it's not just symbolic. There's things happening. But whatever it is, it'll be fearful and terrible, and God will display his irresistible power as he shakes the foundations of his creation. It will happen. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man and I'm personally not sure what that sign is, and it could easily just simply be, when I show up, I show up. That's the sign. Now last week I said it was from Daniel 8, it's actually from Daniel 7. But then will appear the sign of the Son of Man, and if you sort of think about things, the Son of Man 
It's a peculiar term. Jesus always uses it with reference to himself. We, we want him to say son of God, right? Because that's our big issue. Jesus is God and man. What's this son of man stuff? Well, the son of man comes out of Daniel. As Daniel 7 says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And that's what Jesus is referring to. At that point, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will all be raised. They will all mourn. Jesus' coming for many, for most, will not be a blessing. It will be a day of judgment. It will be a day of reckoning. A day of accountability. They're going to see the Son of Man, Jesus says, coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Again, this won't be secret. This won't be something that's going to just be for a certain group of people. The display of power and divine glory will be unmistakable. And everyone will have this awful realization and shake them to the very core, to the bones where their knees are knocking together that God is real and I am accountable. And then Jesus will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. That's going, to be, that's going to be loud. So the parousia, the coming of Jesus, is both visible and audible. Everybody will know it, and everybody will be there. Now you can go through the rest of the Matthew section from 24 into 25, and there's things that are said. There's the fig tree. There's the, I don't know the hour. There's the days of Noah and people being taken and left. There's the parable of the thief where Jesus said, you know, a thief, when he comes, he doesn't announce himself. He just comes, be ready. The servant who's supposed to be faithful. The 10 virgins who are supposed to be watchful. The parceling out of the talents to servants who are supposed to be responsible. Those are the things there. But then you come to the actual final day of judgment. And Jesus picks up the narrative that he left off in 24, Matthew 24, 29 through 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then will he sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him. All the nations that said in the language of Psalm 2, cast away his cords from us. They will be gathered together before him. So this is clearly a continuation of Matthew 24, 30 through 31. The terminology is specifically pointed to. Jesus specifically brings that continuity together when the Son of Man comes in his glory referring back to 24, 30, and 31. Son of man, power, glory. When this happens, the final day of judgment is here. All the nations gathered, and it culminates in eternal punishment and eternal life. This is the final day of judgment. Other passages make it clear what is very, really obvious on the surface Eternal means forever. Eternal judgment. That day of judgment, after it's done, then comes the new heavens and the new earth. And that's the, that's the pattern that the scriptures present. So I've been kind of slow in the, the uh, review because again, uh, this could appear complex, it's not. I've tried to be very simple in putting down, so to speak, on paper, just sort of start drawing some lines based on the language of the scripture. And so here, if you're listening, some people, I guess, listen. Um, if you're listening, you don't have the advantage, but here is the, for those that are here, the, uh, I hate to say it a chart, but just a, a graph of the language. There's a first coming bringing the Holy Spirit. There's a second coming bringing the day of judgment. Bringing a new heavens and a new earth. And in between are the last days.
So there's a picture. I hope you keep it in your minds. I think it'll help you. Helped me. Took me a while to just say, okay, I'm just going to put the scriptures down because everybody else was confusing me. <laughs> There's times I'm easily confused. And so I just went, ah, let's, let's put it down. And then things became far more simple. So what we want to address this morning is we have a beginning. Joel talks about a beginning of the last days. He talks about an end of the last days. But what about the middle? What do you do in between those so that's what we're going to talk about this morning Joel doesn't leave us hanging he doesn't leave us to sort of speculate or to wonder Joel comes and says it shall come to pass in that era in between that Holy Spirit and that day of the Lord everyone that calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved So let's pray and ask the Lord to be with us. Heavenly Father, we come to your throne. And Lord, thank you that we have an Old Testament. Sometimes we scratch our heads on this and that, the history, some of the language, the 10th century BC poetry and such. But Lord, in the end, the things that we need to know are pretty plain, pretty clear, pretty obvious, and pretty powerful and pretty compelling. And Lord, at first one might think, well, why use all this Old Testament stuff that maybe is hard to grasp? And and then when we start finding how the world, even ourselves at one time, started attacking the veracity of the gospel, the validity of Jesus, the history of historicity of Jesus, the teachings, the frameworks of truth and reality that surround him presented in the New Testament. Lord, some people can doubt, cause doubt, produce doubt. And Lord, we can go back to the Old Testament and see all these things in the New Testament are grounded in the Old. They fulfill the Old, but they're grounded in the Old. There's this absolute continuity. And it's pretty hard to predict Roman empires. It's pretty hard to predict a crucifixion of the Son of God if you are not God himself. And so Lord, we just ask that again, as we look to Joel to frame our understanding, to frame it in terms of your history of redemption, Lord, we would have clear minds We would have confidence in your simple scriptures. And uh, Lord, today we must see and be be confident in what, what we're supposed to be doing in between. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this exhortation, or this statement, this declaration, if you will, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is a positive note. This is good news. If you see yourself as a sinner, if you see yourself for who you really are, you look in the mirror, spiritual mirror, and see your soul. Some people see emptiness, some people see guilt. Some people see the blend of both, which is usually always there, but one or the other might be emphasized. You see your inability to keep your own soul alive, your inability to have a reason to really even breathe. When you're young, you don't really think about those things, but as you get older and you've sort of maybe accomplished some goals or at least tried and succeeded somewhat or maybe not, You start to get real about life. You've had enough water go under the bridge of your own personal life and your own personal experience to know that in the end, you're just not a nice guy. You're just not a nice person. You want to think you are. You want to convince everybody you are, but you know who you are. And you start thinking, you know, well, there's got to be a God. There is a God. 
And my conscience is telling me there's accountability and there's a day of judgment. And if you don't know how to deal with that, you start to get in distress. I don't know about you all, but I spent uh, most of my early adult life in total poverty. I made $2 a day, or rather an hour at a leather shop, slept in the back, all the leather scraps I could eat, as Glenn would say. And I didn't mind it. I wasn't married. I just wanted to read the Bible, talk to people about the Lord, so that's what I got to do. So I was a happy soul. Rode a bicycle back and forth to work. Had an $800 trailer to live in that uh, looked like it was only a $500 trailer. <laughs> it wasn't some big deal to me. I didn't really care about stuff. Stuff didn't matter. And then, Gwen, you have to close your ears. I invited a girl over for dinner because I was going to cook her dinner. I took a liking to some girl. She didn't measure up to Gwen, so it didn't work out. But part of it also, <laughs> when I started cooking her dinner in this place I was living, I'd actually moved from a trailer to a, a house that was probably worse than the trailer. I was realizing in the look in her face, it's like, okay, <laughs> she has zero interest in me. I got nothing to offer here. It was fine. Getting tangled up with girls at that point was not what I wanted really to do. But you look at your life. Life is real. You get honest about yourself. You start thinking, how am I going to make it? I was, you know, I could barely pay my bills. Electric bill would come and, well, I got to get some money for this. So I'd go out and do some roofing. And when you're staring at that bill and the reality hits, I can't pay this. Then you start thinking about your life. And I'd pray when I couldn't pay my bills and something would come up. Something would just show up where I could work, get some money and pay them. So the Lord took care of me, but there were some nail biters during those days. So when someone would call on the phone and tell me, hey, you know, here's a roof you can, you can roof, 30 square over in so-and-so place, I was thrilled. I had a solution. When you start seeing that there is a living God and that you are accountable to this God, and that you start to see it's a right thing to be accountable to this God. You're not trying to reason it away. You finally come to the reality that this is true. And one day I have to fulfill and find out what those words of Joel really mean about blood and fire and vapor and smoke and stars falling from heaven. And I will not get out of it. That's the thing about the day of judgment. There's not one of us that can avoid it. And then you hear the gospel. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is good news. I probably told this story before. I always encourage everybody, tell your, tell, tell your personal testimony about how you got saved. You know, because people can argue with this and argue with that, but they got to call you a liar to not believe your testimony. And they're usually not going to do that. But the night before I got saved, I was reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead. <clears throat> and uh, I was toward the last chapters. And again, in that book, you, <laughs> it's really strange. And I'm thinking back, I'm like, what? It was like, almost like a comic book, but... Just, you go, you go and you get your eightfold path of enlightenment all sorted out and um, you, <clears throat> when you die, you get some monk, hopefully he knows how to do it, he'll chop your body up and put all the pieces in a certain way and you'll just shoot off into the universe. 
<clears throat> and if you've gotten your eightfold path of enlightenment all, all done just right, tweaked just the way it needs to be, well, then you'll go off into nirvana. But if not, it's back again. And who knows what you're back again as. And then, of course, there's karma. If you've done bad, you'll come back in a lower place. <clears throat> but that was what I was reading the night before the Lord laid a hold of me. And as I was following the book and the, the Eightfold Path of Enlightenment, and it was just foggy, it's just like you're never really sure what it means. It's not inherently moral. It's mystical. Can't get your hand on it. I realized I couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. My friend had hung himself in a mental hospital. I knew I was next and I couldn't fix myself. And I was way beyond depression at that point. I was way beyond hopeless at that point. I was staring into the dark oblivion of nothingness, of without God and without hope. Next day I heard the gospel. And I probably told you, I'm probably one of the fewest people in the world that was glad to be found out I was a sinner. Because in transcendental meditation and all of that Eastern religion, basically your problem is in your essence. And you have to escape your essence. And when the preacher preached, he said, no, your problem is sin. And it's something Jesus Christ can fix. And I was happy to have a problem that God could fix because I didn't think there was a fix. That was my hopelessness. And I'd never been to really church before except a couple times with some friends who took me to a Baptist church and nothing stuck. I think I spent my time in the back room poking holes in the, in the bottoms of uh, coffee cups. I don't know why. <laughs> you just do that when you're not, a sa not saved. I didn't know anything. It was a total blank slate. But this I did know. I had to call on the name of the Lord. That I knew. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what the content of that was. But I knew that somehow, some way, I had to align my life with God. I had to align who I was with Jesus. And that's the culminating aspect of Joel. This is really the centerpiece of Joel because it's in the middle and it fills the whole middle. The day of Pentecost was one day and the day of the Lord, well, that's it. I don't know what time is gonna be like on that day or after that day, but it's said to be a day. We've got at least 2,000 years in between. That's the centerpiece right now everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so if we look at sort of the little graph here, the graphic trying to represent what is being presented with reference to Joel, there's the day of Pentecost, there's the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, and in between is calling on his name. But exactly what does that mean? Call upon the name of the Lord. Well, the first time we encounter this, really, is in Genesis chapter 4. It's an interesting sort of thing. Um, Cain has risen up and killed Abel, and God gave to Eve uh, another, another son, and that was Seth. And then to Seth is also born a son, and he called his name Enish. Genesis 4.26, to Seth also was a son born, he called his name Enish. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. People, not just one person, but people. Here we have the first indication of a contingent of human beings seeking the true God. 
There was a knowledge of God at that time, a knowledge that was being passed on and preserved. We have it in the book of Job. We have it in the five books of Moses, at least Genesis. And interestingly, this, this term, call on the name of the Lord, it's kind of vague, isn't it? It's a vague term. It's kind of contentlessness, really. Call upon the name of the Lord. Am I supposed to do that vocally? Do I do it mentally? Do I do it in some place? Some temple? Some priest? I mean, what is this calling on the name of the Lord? And, and actually, it's, its vagueness is almost its power. Because calling upon the name of the Lord, though maybe it doesn't have content, it has the one thing most necessary. It has to do with orientation of your life. It is both vague and yet it's expressive. There's no specific content, but there is a specific alignment that is very clear. You are from your heart, from your person, going to direct your concern and your hope and your trust to God. It's a trajectory of your life. It's a change in trajectory. It's repentance, first of all. You don't have to know a lot about God. You don't have to know a lot about Jesus. All you gotta do is say, Lord, I'm turning from who I am to who you want me to be. I'm aligning with you and I know I'm a mess and I'm calling upon your name because you are the only one who can help me, fix me, restore me, give me meaning, give me purpose and give me significance. You're the one. That's just kind of there in calling upon the name of the Lord. You're, you're showing that you need him. This isn't, well, I'm gonna, you know, chat with God today. I'm calling upon his name. This is a commitment of heart, of soul, of life. And we know that the name of the Lord in the end, his name is just a summary expression of his being. His transcendence. His place in the universe as the great creator and sustainer. The Yahweh, the I am, the one who was and is and is to come. The author of all existence and reality. That's in his name. His character. God's name incorporates his honor, his power, his majesty, his glory, his love, his kindness, his goodness, his righteousness, his justice, his veracity. God is light and God is love. And that's what's in his name. So we just don't call upon the Lord with some kind of just nebulous perspective. I was not going to come and call upon the Lord because I thought he was a nice guy. I was calling upon the Lord because I was a broken human being, so broken I could never, couldn't see a fix, tried all the fixes I could come up with. And ended flat. I was calling upon the Lord because I saw him as greater than I am, as far beyond me, as able to fix things in a human being's life that are far beyond anything any test tube could produce, any process could produce. This was the invisible God who deals with invisible things in the heart of human beings. 
calling upon the name of the Lord, that he is able to save. Not only that he will save, but that he's able to save. I always wonder, well, why did God put, you know, two billion plus galaxies out there in the universe? Part of it's to humble the astronomers, but it doesn't seem to be working. But part of it's to convince you and I that when he says you will be saved, he's quite able to pull it off. Quite able. You go on in Genesis and you see the life of Abram, Abraham. Remember, Abraham came out of an idolatrous idolatrous lifestyle in Ur of the Chaldees. He came to the land of Canaan. And God appeared to him and said, get you up from your kindred and from your place and go, follow me, kind of. Abraham was like, well, I'm following God, not really sure where he was going to end up. But he was convinced that God had spoken to him and convinced that following God was in his total existential best interest. God had confirmed promises to Abram. And in this first chapter 12, we see some workings in Abram's life. And at first, it just seems like a story, but you start to think about it, it's, well, here, Genesis 12, 8, and he, Abram, proceeded from there, Shechem. It's good usually to get a little map out of what Israel looked like during that time and sort of follow it. To the mountain on the east of Bethel, and these are cities you can figure out, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. If you can get past the geography or track with the geography, it's good, but that may have some significance, but for sure the next sentence is significant. And there he built an altar to the Lord. There he did what in his day was the way to converse with God. Builds an altar, a place where he can commune with God. He builds an altar, a place where sacrifices are made. So he knew something of what it took to commune with God. There had to be some blood. And it was either going to be yours or an animal's. But he builds an altar to the Lord and he calls upon the name of the Lord. You see, just like us, Abraham had come out of the world, had to have his mind renewed. He had to come and grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, commensurate with his day of revelation, his place in the history of redemption. He's learning more about God. God is speaking to him, and as as his life moves forward, he has some missteps. He goes back some steps, just like we do, but in the end, he moves forward. And his faith in God is, God works on his faith. That's why, you know, Lord, hey, give me more faith, and you just just wish it was like the Matrix. God's just going to plug something in, and I'm going to have faith. All of a sudden, I can, you know. That's what you hope for. That's what you want, right? And then you find out, now nah, faith grows in a different soil. Faith grows in the soil of challenge and adversity. And sometimes that faith grows with the onslaught of Satan. And he comes and just puts those fiery darts in your mind, heart. Tells you you don't belong to God and you have no hope in God. I spend at least a day a week there. I don't know about you all. But you still call on the name of the Lord. You grow in those things. You move forward in those things. And what you feel like at times is designed to thwart you and prevent you from the things you're asking for you. 
look back at one point in your life and you realize what God was doing. But you're calling on the name of the Lord and you're growing in grace and knowledge of the Lord. A progressive development of faith and recognition of the true and living God. Isaac went through it also. The Lord appeared to him the same night, and this is Genesis 26, 24, and 25. I'm the God of Abraham, your father. Remember, you grew up in his tent. Remember, he was ready to stab you one day. I'm the God of Abraham, your father. You saw God work in his life. He taught you about God. Now that your father is gone, know that I am with you and I will bless you and I will multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So Isaac built an altar there, called, called on the name of the Lord. So calling upon the name of the Lord is an initial thing and calling upon the name of the Lord is an ongoing thing. And so here, every one of us, we're here. We might be toward the end of perhaps those last days. Who knows? The world could change its whole course again. But the way it's going, I'm like, how can it get any worse? Or much worse? Before it just teeters off the cliff of darkness. But the question is, are you calling upon the name of the Lord? You're here because you called on the name of the Lord, but are you still doing it? Are you like Abraham, building those altars? Calling upon his name, trusting God, embracing him, hoping in him, being confident in him. Abraham didn't leave Ur the Chaldees on some whim. He had some trust in God that God was going to take him somewhere and that God was going to keep him and God was going to fulfill promises for him. And on that basis, a confidence, a real confidence in God, he moved forward. Calling upon the name of the Lord. Now, if you look the terminology up, calling upon the name of the Lord, crying unto God, there's just a whole set of phrases there's a whole bunch of them. You could take your pick. The Psalms are full of them. I just sort of almost picked one, threw a dart and picked it because you, you throw a dart in the Psalms and you're going to get, <clears throat> wherever it lands, you're going to get calling on the name of the Lord. Psalm 17, 6, I will call upon you for you will answer me, the confidence. Lord, I'm going to call upon you because, you know, I'm going to call upon you and you're going to respond. Maybe not on my schedule, but certainly on yours. I can trust you for it. I'm going to call upon you because you're going to answer me, O oh God. Incline your ear, hear my words. So here, calling upon the name of the Lord is, is actually verbal. The Psalms are very verbal, very, very noisy. Squeaky wheel gets oiled. Go squeak before the Lord. That's how you get things. Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open. Call upon the name of the Lord. This is a very personal thing. Now we can collectively call upon the name of the Lord and that is a dynamic of Christianity. And it's a great dynamic. But like any team, the team is supposed to be comprised of individuals who are responsibly contributing. And you can't contribute if you're not calling on the name of the Lord in your own personal life. Calling upon the name of the Lord requires faith. It involves worship and recognition of God. Again, trust and hope and confidence. There's this reliance. There's this communion with the Lord. There's calling upon the Lord in every circumstance, every situation, whether things are good, whether things are bad, big issues, little issues. Sometimes I think God likes to take care of little issues because the big issues, you know, you're usually in the turmoil and whatever, but when God takes care of a little issue and he puts his thumbprint on it, you go, yeah, the Lord loves me. He gave me this little thing. Little things with your sweetie. 
And what's the cry of the psalmist? Incline your ear to me, hear my words. It's, this is a cry, isn't it? This is a calling upon the name of the Lord. This isn't a casual thing. Yeah, well, I you know, made a prayer, the Lord didn't answer, gave up. I mean, is that, is that what you feel like here? Or is calling upon the name of the Lord an earnest thing? And sometimes God doesn't answer because he wants to bring us to that place in our life where we'll really get serious and focused. And then when we call upon the name of the Lord, it'll be real, it'll be genuine, and principalities and powers will know it. And they will shake. Lord, hear my cry, hear my words, hear my call upon you. Call upon the name of the Lord. Now, Romans chapter 10 sort of gives us a description of calling upon the name of the Lord a little bit, perhaps even a definition, if you will. Now, Romans 9 through 11, those chapters, hmm. Uh, that, that, that's, that's, uh, that's a big plateful. Apostle Paul, bless his heart, but and he, he just takes you through this big, long journey there. And we need it, and it's good to puzzle over it and think through it, and it usually takes years to really be familiar enough with it to say, I kind of think I know what's being said. But thankfully there are parts of it, there are little islands in Romans 9, chapter 9 through chapter 11, little islands where you go, okay, that makes sense, that's clear, that's simple, that's basic, I can, I can take this to the bank. And so here's this little island in chapter 10, uh, verses 9 through 11. And it's about calling on the name of the Lord calling on the name of the Lord now that we are in the last days, calling upon the name of the Lord now that Christ has come. The kingdom of God is now here. So calling upon the name of the Lord takes on a bit of a different dimension in the Old Testament. Romans 10 9 through 11, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Lord. Calling upon the name of the Lord is humbling yourself before God. Now, Jesus said, be like little children. Why? Because little children generally, at least if you're a grandparent, um, when you ask them to do something, they're like, okay, I'll do it. The more independent they get, the more, you know, there's going to be challenges. But a little child just pr pretty much trusts you when you say do this. I think it's really neat when I take the grandkids to the beach and I'm having a really good time with them. They're just fun. I just have fun. You guys, not so much. But the grandkids are fun. But as soon as dad walks in the door, because he usually comes in a week after, <laughs> I'm chopped liver. And I know it. I'm like, okay, take the back seat. Here I am. And it's supposed to be that way. but they're just glad to see dad. They're glad to see me. I, I don't want to think so anyway, but. Mom and dad, as much as they have to traffic in what it takes to raise a child, nevertheless, that they're center of things and they trust them and you can just, you can just see it. And the language of the grandkids and the hope of the grandkids is like mom and dad, I just trust them. 
And though sometimes they can maybe re make requests of me that I find irritating or challenging or whatever, in the end I do it. A child recognizes authority. Maybe some chafing at it, but they recognize it. And coming to God and communing with God and calling upon the name of the Lord must, at the very beginning, recognize God's authority. Kind of a Proverbs chapter one moment. The fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. If you don't start there, you're gonna miss everything. And that's what it is with Jesus Christ. When we come to Jesus Christ, the foundation of it is, is that we recognize that he is God, that he is transcendent, that he has ultimate authority in my life, and I am glad for it. Yeah, you know, like children growing up, you're gonna kick a little bit here and there, or go on, off on a little journey, and you finally find your way back. but you recognize the authority of Jesus Christ. And we must always include that in our message and in our definition of Christianity. You're gonna call upon the name of the Lord. You're gonna confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And you're glad for it. I'm so glad Jesus is responsible for my life because I made such a big mess of it in 20 years. There wasn't any fix in it until he stepped in. And you have to believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Faith must have some intellectual content. I mean, you have to believe that God has raised him from the dead. Resurrection has to somehow be in your, your understanding. But our brains are not the center of faith, are they? Where do you believe that God has raised Jesus from the dead? The heart. The brain's helpful, but it's not, gonna, it's not going to close the deal. It just isn't. And you see, when someone says they're a Christian, I'm like, sure. But I'm always happy when I, when I just know that from somebody's heart, there's that faith that Jesus is in heaven and he's my Lord. Whatever the noise that's made in the, in the ins and outs of, of walking with God, that doesn't worry me. Because when someone's heart is captured by Jesus Christ, it's a done deal. All of us here have to look in a mirror and go, where do I believe in Jesus? From the head, it's good to have your head full of the word and head full of truth, but its roots must reach in the heart. For with the heart one believes and is justified. The heart. And with the mouth, I mean, there's some external things, and with the mouth, Jesus said, speaks from where? The heart. That's why Jesus said, you know, every idle conversation you have, you're going to give account in the day of the Lord. Why? Because, you know, Jesus is just going to be picky. Did you get your grammar right? You, no. Your idle conversation 
tells the truth about what's in your heart. We confess and one is saved. We confess truth, but that's not where it begins in the mouth, it begins in the heart. And everyone who believes on him shall not be put to shame. And here is a quote from Isaiah, but Paul goes on. And this is part of his bigger issue that he's dealing with. What about you know, Jews and Gentiles? What about really, chapter nine opens up with, what about the Jew now that Christ has come? Because, well, they killed him. So what do we do with all this? And this is sort of in the middle of that bigger discussion. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek or Jew and Gentile, Jew and non-Jew. For the same Lord is Lord of all. There's no God of the Greeks and God of the Jews. There's one God who made heaven and earth and everything in it. And God is the God of all. And he bestows his riches on all who call upon him. This is looking good about calling on the name of the Lord. God bestows riches. Well, what are those riches? It's because sometimes we don't see them. Those riches are still in store for us. A new heavens and a new earth riches that can't even be imagined. I mean, folks in the world are ready to trade the whole world for their soul. I'm like, they're shooting too low. God has riches. You just gotta wait for them. And they're riches that only a born again heart will love and appreciate. And then Paul quotes Joel. I mean, he's quoting all these Old Testament. Hey, this faith, this, this, this hope for everybody is all over the Old Testament and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And you call upon the name of the Lord, God will gradually and finally and fully and eternally bestow riches. And then Paul goes down the sort of uh, inferences, a series of inferences. Well, how can you call upon him whom you have not believed? And how are they, Gentiles, to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So Paul goes through this little series of inferences, but he ends up where? He ends up in Isaiah 52.7. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So it's okay to reason about you know, the scriptures, but you better start and you better end in scripture. <laughs> the reasoning better take you from one place in scripture legitimately to another place in scripture. Interpretation. shall be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved how? Saved what? Saved where? Saved in every aspect of our human predicament. Saved in every dimension of our human existence. Saved from guilt and certain judgment. Saved from the power of sin and death. Saved from dominion of evil and Satan. Saved from the just wrath of God in the day of the Lord. That's what we're saved from. What about two? Well, we're justified by the blood of Christ. Every one of you here who believes in Jesus, I'm gonna tell you this is something Satan is gonna take out of your hands if you'll let it go. He will be a tug of war with you. You are justified in Christ and you have been declared righteous and Satan knows it. He's probably more convinced of it than we are sometimes but you've been declared righteous and you've been accepted as righteous. God has accepted you. You've called on his name and he has accepted you. And every breath you take and every second of your existence, God has not only declared you righteous and accepts you as righteous, he regards you as righteous. Don't forget that. 
And God, from the day you were saved until all eternity, will treat you as righteous. You've called on the name of the Lord. You shall be saved. Justified by the blood of Christ, freed from the power of sin, and one day from, delivered from its presence. Ultimate victory over Satan and evil, and one day your foot will be on his neck. Romans 3.15, or rather Genesis 3.15, quoted in Romans 6.20, referred to. Preserved in the day of the Lord, when that day comes and people are calling upon rocks and mountains to fall on them, you will be preserved. Angels are going to come and gather you. That's real. I mean, Jesus tells us that. We're supposed to think about that. Angels are going to come find you and get you. And God will vindicate us. There will be the vindication. Not that we're righteous in ourselves, but that we lived a life, we called upon the name of the Lord, we lived a life that was commensurate with it, not perfect, but real. And God will vindicate us. And to borrow the language of Matthew 13, we will shine as the sun in the kingdom of our Father. You shall be saved. Who's going to be saved? Everyone. Anybody? Everybody? Anyone? Everyone. You could start work through the book of Acts forward. You could work backwards into the Gospels. Who's going to be saved? People of every condition. People of every sort. People of every age. You young people here, you can be saved. You can. You all know Miss Gwen. She got saved at four years old. She knew that she was a sinner. She knew God was real. She knew that Jesus' blood was necessary for her to be forgiven. And she believed on Jesus and she repented and took the doll clothes she had stolen from her friends and gave them all back. You can be saved. Little Samuel was saved. You can be saved. The people right in front of Peter, he's about to bring them to the, to the bar of God's justice and tell him, you just murdered the Son of God, the one who can save you. The only one who can save you, you just murdered him. Deal with that in your conscience. Some of you guys, man, I've got some regrets in my past. Some pretty rotten things I've done. Well, have you killed the Son of God? These people had. And the Lord saved them, and they walked away with a good conscience in Christ. Acts 5, people who are demon-possessed go back into the Gospels there. Acts 8, the despised Samaritans, the powerful queen's eunuch of Ethiopia, the queen of Ethiopia, a good man. You can go to Acts 9, Saul of Tarsus, who again, a relentless persecutor of Christians. In Acts 22, as he describes and rehearses, he said, this old Ananias came and said that I was to arise and be baptized, calling on the name of the Lord. Acts 10, Cornelius, the Roman centurion. Acts 11, the Lebanese and Syrians, the island of Cyprus. Acts 13 through 14, the cities of Asia. Acts 16, Philippi, the refined businesswoman Lydia and the roughneck jailer. Acts 17, the great multitude in Thessalonica and Berea and a few intellectuals at Athens. Acts 18, the Corinthians. Oh, the Corinthians. Full of abominable idolatries and dishonorable lifestyles. And the Lord said, I have many, many people in this city. And the list goes on. Are you on it? Have you called upon the name of the Lord? Well, we're done. Here's the picture. It's a picture I hope that you take and go, you know, this is a pretty simple picture. It comes from Joel, words of Scripture. And just let that be your framework of thought and purpose and heart. But I've alluded to it that there's one more thing. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come and who is able to stand? 
You see, God tells you today that now is the day of salvation and you need to call on the name of the Lord. But if you will not call on the name of the Lord now, you will be calling on mountains and rocks to fall on you then. I just plead with you. Repent, believe, embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and call on his name. Well, Heavenly Father, we come before your throne and again we just thank you that you have sent to us a day of salvation. It's been open for 2,000 years and sinners and every generation have been coming to you. You've been saving people from their sin. You're good at it. You're perfect at it. You get the job done. And Lord, that we would always trust you, always rejoice in you, and that we would always be energized to know we can go out to anyone and bring this powerful gospel. And our message is simple, and it's really understandable by most people. Call upon the name of the Lord. Turn and call upon him, to trust him, to rejoice in him, to live your life unto him. Lord, that's not a big ask, because our lives are pretty, pretty miserable. And the trade is pretty good. You get us, but we get you. And Lord, just pray that you would just always have this living in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.